Greetings. Glad y'all are here. Welcome to the only Bible study where the goal is not to go deeper in the book. That is our tagline that we sell people on to make them want to return. We're not going deeper in this study. So if this is your first time and you're thinking about walking out, give it a minute because I'll explain that. Is this someone's Spider-Man? Someone put it on here. I mean, if it stayed here better, this is yours? Okay, I'm going to set it right here. You can get it after class. No, no, okay. Um, we're going to uh, be in Mark part two. We started part one last week. Um, so let's pray and we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to it. Lord, we come to you now and we thank you uh, for our time tonight. And I pray for spirit-led fluidity and cohesion with a set of notes that frankly seems very all over the place. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful for the brevity of Mark's gospel, but because of its dynamics, we're, we're needing to look at a number of different things tonight. So I pray that you would allow us to spend time on that which you want us to spend time on. And I pray beyond that, that as we think over what we've heard, that you would give us understanding. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If this is your first time, uh, these studies on Wednesday night... Our overview studies. So I mentioned earlier, um, can you grab that door? Uh, I mentioned earlier that um, the goal of these studies is not necessarily to go deeper, like you think you might do in a regular Bible study. And the reason is, is when we were in the uh, minor prophets, a lot of that was mostly new to most of us. Now, some of you are gurus and you've spent time in the minor prophets. I, however, was not um, until I had to teach them, and so. Uh, in the Minor Prophets, everything was new, so it seemed like you were going deeper, mainly because we actually opened to Haggai. It felt like we were going deeper in Haggai because we opened the book of Haggai. It's different with the Gospels because we're all so incredibly familiar with them. We know the Gospel story. We know the story of Jesus' birth. We know his ministry. We know the um, arrest and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. We know all these things, and so the Gospels are very familiar, so especially in a gospel survey study, it's important to understand we're trying to gain a different perspective, a perspective that will serve us in the future as we utilize these gospels in our daily walk. And so what we're trying to do is sit up here at 30,000 feet, understanding what makes up this book and what are the different parts and what, what's the difference between the way Matthew approaches something than the way Mark does and then Luke and John and what's the difference in the amount of parable time and the way that Jesus refers to himself and the, the writing styles? Because it'll help us to be better students of the word. Ultimately, the goal is not just to gain knowledge, but to be conformed to the image of Christ and understanding how God wanted his gospel communicated through, through four different individuals will help us in understanding some of the nuance and the depth of what Christ did, what Christ said, and what Christ commanded of us. So... This is Mark part two, which means there was a Mark part one. So let's review Mark part one. Which apostle had a significant influence on Mark's gospel account? Peter. <coughs> I did not know this before preparing for, for this study. Um, I've read through Mark. I've, I've taught through portions of it. And his style is clearly very different than some of the uh, more narrative stuff with, with John and with Matthew. Um, but I, what, what we learn as we study history is that 
when Peter was doing his ministry in the church in Rome, it's likely near the end of that, that he, um, that Mark sat with Peter and wrote down all these things that clearly feel like firsthand account because Peter was there. And there's details that are there. So, so before I give it too much away, what ways, in what ways is Peter's influence on Mark's gospel made evident? In what ways is that influence seen? A lot of action, absolutely. What else? Very direct. What else? Yeah, details. Yeah, yeah, about Peter especially. And where was Mark's cameo? Yeah, the naked guy. Mark was the naked guy. What is it near the end? Hold on, let's find it. It's such a good, profound moment in verse 40, 51 of chapter 14. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. There's nothing before it that's of importance nothing or that that pertains to this young man or after it and so most people believe that this is kind of mark's signature saying i was that naked man who left my linen ephod whatever with them so um interesting the style is different it's it's engaging it's action based um it's a great um a great if you're sharing the gospel with a new believer or someone who hasn't heard it, Mark's a great place to go because it keeps your attention. And it's really far more about the action of things than the theology of things, though there is deep theology in it. Though Mark's gospel is more brief, in what ways is it more vivid in detail? Remember some of the things we talked about, how vivid those details were? What were some of them? Yeah, when they opened the roof and let the guy down through it. The roof or the roof, depending on however you say it. It's whatever. Different beliefs in the same faith. What other details were vivid that we talked about? Yeah. Yeah, the miracles, the healings, um, the, the walking on water thing, um, how they freaked out at certain things. Yeah, there, there were a number of details in there that clearly Mark wouldn't have had if not for um, Peter coming to Mark's mama's house in the book of Acts. So, um, what were some of the people's responses to the gospel? That was, that was a main portion of where we spent our time last week. What were some responses to the gospel? Confusion. Yeah. Yep. There was some confusion. Remember, Jesus' family treated him like the drunk uncle at the family reunion where he was talking. And as the more he talked, they were like, okay, we got to do something. We got to get, get someone grab Jesus. He's, he's lost his mind. They literally treated him like that because of what he was saying. So there was confusion. What else was there? Who were the ones who were the most confused? Those who were close to him, the disciples. It's interesting. A lot of confusion in the disciples. Who had the most clarity? Who were the ones who believed? 
Generally, it was the outsiders. It was those who needed healing, those who hadn't been a part of the system, those who weren't in the inner circle that, that were the ones who were portrayed in the Gospel of Mark as the ones believing. And then finally, there were some who were antagonistic. Who were the antagonistic ones? Scribes and the Pharisees. Absolutely. They heard what he said. They provoked him. They were antagonistic. In Matthew, we consider Jesus as the son of David. And tonight, a lot of what we're going to consider is how Mark refers a lot to Jesus as the son of man. So, Matthew, bureaucratic, tax collector, most Jewish of the Gospels, uh, referring to Jesus as son of David, is fitting. Mark, however, refers to Jesus as the son of man. And we're going to explore that a lot tonight. So first, this week... Before we do that, we're going to consider what's known as the messianic secret. Does anyone, has anyone ever heard that phrase before, messianic secret? Show of hands, anybody? Okay, fantastic. Then it really is a messianic secret, I guess. Uh, turn to Mark chapter 1. <laughs> Mark 1, look at 25. Start in 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. As I continue reading, I want you guys to know we're going to read a lot in Mark tonight. We're going to be all over the book of Mark, and then we'll take a detour through Numbers. At one point we're going to stop in Daniel. It's going to get crazy. So I need y'all to kind of prepare, have a mindset, because if you get tired of turning, know that we're probably going to be turning more, even though you're tired, and that helps to know that ahead of time. We're going to be covering some ground. So here, he goes there, he taught them as one who had authority, and in verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. He rebuked him. And look at 134. And 32. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And look at 44. Starting in 42, and immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and to him, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing, for your cleansing, what Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But don't say anything to anyone. And then look at 3.12. A great crowd has followed Jesus. In verse 11, it says, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. What is Jesus repeating in these verses? Be quiet. Be quiet. It's not time. It's what's known as the messianic secret, where there's a certain time in this gospel in particular, it's in other gospels, but this one in particular, there's a time where it is not right for everyone to know Jesus' real identity. It's not time yet. And especially in these verses, there's those who've been healed, but then, and, and, and particularly those who've had demons. Even the demons knew who Jesus was. They recognized him as the Son of God, and he strictly charged them. I mean, you would think, 
he would say, all right, demon, come out. And yeah, I'm going to use a demon for evangelism. You go tell everybody, and then the guy who you came out of, you go tell everybody, and you tell your two friends, and they'll tell their two friends. But it wasn't time yet. There's a timing issue here, and that's why the Messianic secret exists. Look at 4, 11 through 12. In verse 10, it says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is a pretty complex set of verses where we see Jesus even utilizes the parables to make known some things to some people and to make sure other people do not understand those same things. Does that make sense? So we need to see this pattern of what Jesus is doing here. Look at 5.43. Start in 42. 5.42. And immediately, this little girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement as he had healed her. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Then over in 736, it says, And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So you see things slowly sort of coming to a peak, and and they're, they're increasing in people's desire to say what they have seen and say what they have heard. And then in 8.26, it says, um, And he sent them home to the village, saying, Do not even enter the village, because it's not time for them to know. And then in 8.30, we see, And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. What was Jesus doing in these verses? Dever has a note. He said, His purpose was to shield himself from the attention of the crowds, long enough to teach the disciples what the Messiah had really come to do. I'm going to read that again because it's important to understand. Jesus' purpose in this messianic secret was to shield himself from the attention of the crowds long enough to teach the disciples what the Messiah had really come to do. Why did he have to teach them what the Messiah had really come to do? Yeah, yeah. their expectations were informed by Scripture, but they didn't have Jesus' understanding of what the Scripture said. And so he had to take time to bring them up the hill because their expectation of the Messiah was he's going to be the king and he's going to reign on earth. He's not going to be killed. He's going to reign and he's going to, and he's going to dominate and he's going to be the one to, to relieve us and to, to um, give us victory. And so he had to have this amount of time here where there's this thing called the Messianic Secret where it, it takes time for him to sort of reinform and re-educate the disciples. And look at 9, 30 through 31. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. You see that? He didn't want anyone to even know where they were because he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. 
But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So they've gotten to a point where um, we've seen in other areas where they, they just don't understand and they ask him. But this, this had gotten to a different point where he explains that he's going to have to die. And that just doesn't jive with everything they know about the Messiah. It's sort of like when you begin to share Jesus with someone who thinks they know who Jesus is and thinks they know what Jesus wants, but then there's this sort of moment where it's like you start saying things that they've never heard of, and they're kind of at a loss. And, and it's okay because it's a teachable moment like Jesus is having with his disciples here. And so uh, Dever has a note. He says, once the disciples were re-educated, the messianic theme evaporated. In chapter 12, if you turn over to chapter 12, Jesus publicly teaches in the temple. And so this secret was necessary for a little while, but then it was, it was important that it was no longer necessary. So there's some people that can wrongly... So this is, this is why it's good to have a bird's eye view of a book, right? Because I could cherry pick any of those verses and you see Jesus doing something amazing, saying, now tell no one. And then I could, I could cherry pick that and I could kind of create my own philosophy on it. And I could create my own theology from those verses. I, I could take 10 verses, like I shared, at least 10 verses already. And you could build a theology on that saying, you know what? Y'all need to keep your faith a secret. Right? I mean, I could give you example after example after example. You guys need to keep your faith quiet. Don't tell anybody, okay? It's not time. Jesus right here just said, it's not time. So don't tell anybody. But that's why it's important for us to have a bigger bird's eye view of some of these things. Because I could literally cherry pick 10 different verses, preach a sermon, cite all 10 verses, explaining that you need to keep your faith to yourself. But here, if we have a bird's eye view, what we understand is that there was a moment where that messianic secret has served its purpose and it is now a thing of the past because Jesus himself went and taught publicly. Um, sort of a side note, it's not a real important theological point, but what does this tell us about discretion and evangelism? Or does it tell us anything about discretion and evangelism? Yeah, I think there's, I don't know, some, some of it has to do with zeal. Some of it may take zeal too far and turn it into pride. But sometimes it's, we have a perspective of either you're willing to share it really loud in a public setting or you don't really love Jesus or you're not really following Jesus. And then there's some that are so careful that it's never the right time. So we can, we can fall in any category. Like there's some where it's like, man, I just, if you, if you can't share your faith at Walmart, you can't share your faith anywhere. We're going to go. I'm going to Walmart tonight. I'm going to make sure three people are saved before I leave. And it's just, it's always, if you really believe and you really love, you're going to be out loud. But then there's others that kind of come over here and say, well, I don't know. It just doesn't feel like the right time. It doesn't feel like the right time. It doesn't feel like the right time. It doesn't feel like the right time. I want to be careful here because I don't know that person. I want to be careful. I don't want to offend. And it's, somehow it inevitably ends up that it's never the right time. And so what I think this set of verses does is it kind of gives us these two things where there should not be any guilt if there's a spirit-led hesitancy, hesitancy to be loud in public with, with your message. There shouldn't be, you shouldn't feel guilty if there's a spirit-led check in your spirit 
about should I share right now or not? Or, or should I share in a particular way right now or not? Should I stand up and be loud? Or should I be, show some discretion? There shouldn't be any guilt in that. Jesus saw here one approach proper in one time and a different approach proper in other times. And I think if we're staying in step with the Spirit, we'll have different approaches. I mean, there's some that would say, um, even in, in preaching styles, that... Um, Biblically, you could make a very strong case that if you're preaching to people who don't know much about Jesus, um, topical and thematic preaching is what's better. But if you're preaching to believers who are more you know, um, firm in their faith and more mature in their faith, expositional preaching and teaching is better. And so I believe wholeheartedly in expositional, verse-by-verse preaching. That's what we do on Sunday morning. That's what we've done for over a decade here. But if I was to go to a country and get to preach to a group of people who know little to none about Jesus, it's okay to change it. You don't have to die on every hill. Like, it's okay to look at this and say, sometimes this is a good approach. Sometimes this is a good approach. But the, the key is staying in step with the Spirit. I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in another country, and... Things were, things were getting uh, less ideal for sort of open-air evangelism. You know, like, I'm at the train station. I'm going to start telling this person about Jesus. And I asked him. I said, man, we send students over here that are like just zealous, eager, put my feet on the ground anywhere, we're going to charge the gates of hell with water pistols, and we are going to convert the whole bus stop. You know, they're, they're eager. They want to share. And I was like, man, do we need to show any balance? I said, once you have a team here, how do you give them direction? Because on one hand, you don't want to, you don't want to overstep and overstate something if it's not a right time or a right situation. On the other hand, you don't want to pour cold water on someone's zeal if they're eager to come here. And so I said, for you, I see you showing a lot of discretion on how you share and how you move. But I don't expect the, the 14-year-old who is just fired up about being here to show the same discretion. Does that put you in a weird place? Because this is where you serve. And I, I will never forget his answer. His answer was, I am not worried about getting kicked out of this country. All I tell them is you stay in step with the Spirit. If the Spirit leads you to share, you share. If the Spirit leads you to not share, don't share. But he said, if someone shares and we get kicked out because it was a right time to proclaim gospel, he said, that, that's completely up to God. And so, I don't know, this little section, I, I, I think some of us carry guilt about not being more out loud, and there may need to be a challenge there to, to share your faith and to say what you've seen in, in Christ. Remember, the message a couple weeks ago is you don't really have an option where you have the liberty to keep it to yourself completely. But there is discretion in staying in step with the Spirit on when, when to share and how to share. Um, what do you think that most people would say is the basis of Jesus' teachings? If you went up to whoever on the street said, what do you think is the basis of Jesus' teachings? What, what, was, what did he talk about the most? Building the kingdom. What do y'all think? Love your, Love your neighbor. Which should fall into what category? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Maybe sort of moral. 
He's a good moral teacher. Morals, high morals, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, don't, 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 don't. In Mark, it's interesting because when you really focus on what Jesus talks about, you might be surprised at what you find. So look at 10.45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a certain deacon in this church that shares that verse a lot, and it's so appropriate and so fitting and such an encouragement. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Look over at 827. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah. Others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to. To, he charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. What is Jesus' focus on those two verses? It's a sample. What's his focus? What's the content of what he's talking about? Okay, how he'll die, how he'll be risen from the dead. So simplify that even more. What is he talking about? What's the content? Himself. Yeah, exactly, who he is. Himself. And how does Jesus refer to himself in these verses? Son of man, exactly. So Matthew has an emphasis on Jesus as the son of David, where Mark has an emphasis on Jesus as the son of man. And I don't know if you're like me, but growing up, when I heard that, that was probably one of the more confusing terms. Ancient of days always threw me off. Sometimes it still throws me off. I've studied it. And if you said, what does that mean? I'd be like, well, there's just so much we could talk about. Ancient of days and son of man. They're, 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 it sounds like it means one thing in one area, and it sounds like it means another thing in another area. So it's confusing. The clarity is found in understanding that in one area it means one thing, in another area it means another, but it comes together for a cohesive whole that gives us deeper understanding of who Christ referred to himself, of who Christ, what Christ meant when he referred to himself as the Son of Man. So, turn to Numbers twenty three nineteen. Numbers. We studied that many moons ago. Twenty-three, nineteen. This is part of Balaam's second oracle. Remember, Balaam was the one who had the special donkey that talks like Shrek. So, twenty-three, nineteen. It says this: God is not man that he should lie, 
or a son of man that he should change his mind. That verse alone refers to the son of man as what as being different than what? Son of man is being different than what? God. Exactly. Because he says God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. And so in that verse, son of man is indicating one who is more like us and less like God, which is interesting. So what we can take from this, and this is where I said we're going to have to go to some different scriptures and really walk through it. We're building on what this means and what what it was referring to and why it was ever used. At the very least, what we hear is Jesus' use of son of man to describe himself is an indicator that he was human. Think about if we're fact collecting and we're trying to put together a case. What is the Son of Man? At the very least, if we go way back in the story here, we see God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. There's an indicator here that God is being shown distinct and different from Son of Man. Son of Man is human. So what Jesus is indicating in the use of Son of Man is that he is human. So that's the first thing. If you're writing that in your notes, write, Jesus is human because he refers to himself as Son of Man. Now turn back to Mark 12, 36. Mark 12, 36. We'll start in 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple... He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him. Gladly. Now, what's going on here is interesting. To, uh, look at 1462. We got 1236. Keep your finger there and look over at 1462. Jesus is before the council, and Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. What does this reveal about Jesus? Those two things. What does it reveal about Jesus? What is Jesus revealing about himself? His equality with God and his humanness. Okay, what else, what else, what reference do we see him saying is talking about him that maybe they didn't know before? Yeah, he calls himself son of man again. And in that verse, he says, he's David, and he's referring to Psalm 110. So if you want to write in your notes, you can go read it later. So write Psalm 110. He's referring in 110 here saying, the Lord said to my Lord, 
two capitalized lords, so something's going on there that's different. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So David himself calls the Christ the Lord. So what Jesus is getting at, stick with me, is that they're trying to explain that, that um, Christ is the son of David, and Jesus is making the case that here, even in Psalm 110, David said, Christ is the Lord. It's an, it's an important reality that David says that Christ is the Lord. So as Jesus is teaching his disciples, he's bringing them along and he's revealing to them things that they knew some things. They knew the prophecies, but they didn't know Psalm 110 was about Jesus until Jesus told them it was about Jesus. Do you see that? He, like they're, they're citing the prophecies in a way of saying, well, but he would be the son of David, so how does that work? And he's like, well, David himself said that um, Christ is Lord. Capital L, not lowercase. So here, we see, referencing Psalm 110, he was human, but he was not merely human. That would be what you write in your notes, and I left out the word not in mine, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, correct that. It's pretty much one of the most major points of the night. He was human, but he was not merely human. He was human, but he was not merely human. Ezekiel uses the phrase, son of man, more than any other book anticipating and foreshadowing Christ in the life of Ezekiel. Christ, like Ezekiel, would be a messenger, and Christ, like Ezekiel, would be bringing a message of redemption. And so this Son of Man theme continues. We see Jesus is human, but not merely human. And finally, to the first century Hebrew, in their mind, like it's helpful to know history and to climb into this, in their mind, the Son of Man was more than a prophet. So some of them said, he's a prophet, right? He asked them, who do they say that I am? He's, he's drawing in those who are close to him and saying, guys, who are they saying that I am? And the first answer, you know, prophet. Someone say you're prophet. One of the first answers. In the first century Hebrew mind, the Son of Man was more than a prophet. Son of Man was another title for the Messiah. Comparing the Gospels, John states in 1224, We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? The phrase, the Son of Man must be lifted up, was confusing to them because they didn't understand why he must be lifted up because they knew he was more than a prophet. In their minds, he wasn't only a prophet. He was more than a prophet. He was human, but he wasn't only human. And so there's all these things coming together as Jesus sort of is taking his time to teach those closest. Then they would go out and teach. And then the messianic secret goes away. And then he teaches in the, in the synagogues. And he's revealing who he is. And he, the content of what he talks about is himself. They need to understand who he is. He has come to earth. He is God. He is human, but he is not merely human. There are prophecies that have been spoken about him that the most learned scribes and Pharisees and Jews would not have understood rightly if Jesus had not taught them. So the content of Jesus' teaching was not simply moral character. It was Jesus himself was the content of his teaching. So what will the Son of Man do? That would be the question that we would ask tonight. Great, Son of Man, we get it. Son of Man, Son of Man. What is he going to do? And the first thing that we're going to see him doing is bearing authority. Turn back to chapter 1. The Son of Man... What will he do? He will bear authority. Look at 122. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. The scribes taught, but not as ones who had authority. Jesus taught with authority, 
that was unique and different from that of the scribes. So what will the Son of Man do? First, he will bear authority, number one, in teaching. Christ's authority is in teaching. So we're going to make a little list here. And if someone ever asked you about the authority of Christ, like, well, wasn't he just a good teacher? Was he, was he just a moral guy? What, wasn't he just, you know, uh, sort of an uh, amazingly popular, uh, uh, unexpectedly popular philosopher? Jesus' teaching was on his own authority in teaching. So where was his authority? If someone asked you that question, what authority does he have? Well, his authority was first in the teaching, and it wasn't just by his own statement. It was by those who observed what he did and how he taught, as opposed to the best teachers of the time. The second is in 127. So we see Jesus bearing authority in teaching, and then in 127, start in verse 26, and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So first, Jesus' authority as the Son of Man is over the teaching, and then his authority as the Son of Man is over evil spirits. That's encouraging. If y'all ever deal with darkness, y'all ever deal with this battle that we have, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and darknesses, it's real good to be reminded that Jesus bears authority over evil power. He bears authority over evil spirits. Look at 2.10. Oh, we'll start in 9, just to give us a little bit of context. This is Jesus healing the paralytic. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed. And go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified, saying, We never saw anything like this. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. If you need your sins forgiven, there is one person who has authority to forgive those sins, and it's Jesus. Authority in teaching, authority over your spirits, authority to forgive sins. And finally, look at 219. In verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So Jesus is speaking to a cultural issue at the time. There was a spiritual issue at the time. And he says, You don't understand what time it is. The bridegroom is with the bride. It's not a time for fasting. It's a time for celebration. So here, we see him bearing authority to be the bridegroom of Israel. This is a very major point in the Gospels, understanding his relationship to Israel. So, the authority, the Son of Man, what will he do? Well, first he'll bear authority in teaching over evil spirits to forgive sins and to be the bridegroom of Israel. The Son of Man will also suffer. That's the second thing. Look at 9.12. These verses are a little bit later after the Messianic secret begins to dissipate. And we see that in the public nature of his proclamation is when the suffering begins to be made more of a reality. In 
And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Look at 1441. 1441 says, Well, look at verse 42. And again, he came and found them sleeping. This is where he's praying in Gethsemane. And he says, I need y'all to make sure whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Keep watch. And what happens? They fall asleep. And so again, he came and found them sleeping. Then not once, but twice. For their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Look at 8.31. As I'm reading these verses, I just want you to think about the perfect Christ is the one speaking these things. The one who had no sin. So while this is a Bible study and we're trying to gain some insight from an overview perspective, take into account Jesus was the one who went to them. Jesus was the one they fell asleep on a third time. Jesus was the one who said, it's time. My betrayer is coming. Jesus is the one who who knew that and still went through with it. Still knew what God, knew a plan that was God's. And so here in 831, we see this is Jesus, uh, Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ. And then in verse 31, remember, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. How might this have felt if you were a disciple? Abandoned? Interesting, right? That's a really honest answer. They probably felt somewhat abandoned. Yeah, there may have been some doubt. Did I put my trust in the right one? Because he says he's going to suffer and die, but I didn't think the Messiah was going to suffer and die. How else might it have felt? Yeah. 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 How can God suffer? That would be yeah the question there. Yeah. 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 I mean, Peter thought he was confused, right? It's, you are the Christ. Peter, I will build my church on you, the rock. And some people don't think it's him, it's the church, it's the rock, but whatever. So, different beliefs in the same faith, it's all good. Um, uh, but he, right after that is when he says, I'm going to suffer. And then Peter's like, no, you are not, Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So he did the same thing that his family did, right? Jesus has lost his mind. This, this isn't all adding up. It doesn't make sense. 
And in the moment, it, it didn't make sense to them. But that's how God's plan is. Sometimes in the moment, it doesn't make perfect sense to us. But it's God's plan, and it's working out. So it might have felt a, a number of things. Odd, abandonment, confusion um, to those disciples. But there's another thing about these verses that's included in these verses about what the Son of Man will do. And I want to see if anyone caught it. Um, we'll go ahead and turn over to Daniel 7. This will take the longest to find. Daniel 7. There's a beautiful reality there because, you know, it's Mark on Peter's account said Jesus said this plainly. So there's kind of a cool dynamic there where it's like Peter walked away from all of it saying, we don't get to negotiate who the Messiah is. <laughs> we don't get to have sway and say in, in, in exactly what we're going to expect out of, our, out of our Redeemer. And so um, here in Daniel 7.13 it says, I saw in the night visions, so we're looking at prophecy here, and visions and prophecy, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and, glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is a verse that Jesus invokes three times in Mark. This verse where we see this dominion and authority being given to Christ who will reign and rule and judge in the kingdom. And so look at Mark 8.38. This is one of the spots where Jesus, is re Jesus references um, this verse. And in 8.38, Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the, his Father with his holy angels. That's referencing that Daniel passage. So Jesus invokes these verses to see, for them to see, Jesus will return to judge. What's the Son of Man going to do? He's going to bear authority. He's going to suffer. And he's going to return to judge. So that's the third thing that we have to get from this, is he will return to judge. And Jesus invokes this shortly after Jesus rebukes um, Peter. And then look in 
we see in one, Jesus foretelling the destruction of the temple. Remember, they're walking out and they have a beautiful view of the temple and the disciples are like, you know, this is the one who was, the temple was built for. This is a sweet moment. Let's see if he's thinking this is as impressive as we think it is. I said, Jesus, do you see? Do you see this building? Do you see the temple? And Jesus' response is not at all what they expected. And he says, I, I'll tear it down and build it up. I, won't left, I will not leave one stone. It'll, I'm going to bring it down and I'll build it back up in three days. And so we see the signs of the close of the age, the abomination of desolation. And look at 1324. But in those days after tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth to the heavens. As his disciples were marveling at the temple, Jesus reminds them that he will return to judge the earth. And finally, in 1461, after Jesus has been arrested, everyone has left him alone. We see in 1461, um, but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest said, are you the Christ, the son of the, of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, he quotes the Daniel verse to say after his arrest. He says it after he's rebuked by Peter. He says it as they're marveling at the temple and focused on the earthly kingdom. And he says it even after he's been arrested. I will return to judge. I am the one that Daniel had a dream and vision about, about being seated and given dominion by God. And then turn over to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 has a thread that runs all through the Gospels. And in verse 1 it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground, and had no form or majesty that we should be like him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And then in verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, um, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In Mark ten forty five, Jesus references that verse. Jesus knew Isaiah fifty three was about him. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom by becoming a guilt offering and by bearing our iniquities. And that's what Jesus taught. Jesus referenced those who prophesied about him, and he taught clearly that he was going to do these things. Finally, Mark gives us some really great understanding of who we are. In 834, um, in Mark, um, we see this statement. In 834, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When we consider Peter's failings and how Peter 
affected Mark clearly in the communication of the gospel account. We ended in 1450 where even Peter, along with everyone else, deserted God. In 1450, you can see it. It says, um, it says uh, and they all left him and fled. So here Jesus is, left alone and abandoned, exactly as he said he would be. There's no surprises here if you're listening and paying attention. It was surprising to them, but for us, we could read about what was going to happen, and then we read about it happening. Everyone denies him, but look at the verses 1468. He denied it. Peter denies Jesus even after this, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to, to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Peter fails Jesus so miserably. We've heard the call to take up your cross, to count the cost. And his disciples fail him, and Jesus, the most bold of them, fails maybe the most out loud miserably. He rejects Christ, and he denies Christ. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. And look at the next verse, 1472. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Dever has a note that we'll close with. He says, In those tears was Peter's hope. True repentance often begins with realizing the weight of your sins and the greatness of your need. It's interesting how it's the gospel story, hearing it all in, in, in one flow got to the point where Peter wept and realized his desperate need of Christ. And it's the same with us. We need to hear the whole gospel story. Sometimes you'll share with Jesus or you'll talk to people about Jesus and they have no sense of the weight of their own sin. They have no sense of what they've done wrong and what, what, what sin's wages are. But here we see the gospel effect and it says, True repentance often begins with realizing the weight of your sins and the greatness of your need. It can come like a thunderclap. Then it can cause showers of regretful weeping. And if it is godly sorrow, it will bring change. May God give us the eyes to see the truth about ourselves and then the truth about Jesus, who came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. This was good news for Peter, and it is good news for us too. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the gospel of Mark. And for the way that you brought together Mark and Peter to have a unique relationship where Mark was able to capture details about life with Christ that he would have otherwise not have. Lord, I'm thankful for Jesus' teaching and how the basis of his teaching was himself. The content of his teaching was himself. And in that teaching, we learn a lot about ourselves and our need of him. Lord, I'm thankful also that we're called to walk by faith, that we can't know everything, that today and tomorrow we'll need to have faith, but that even in walking by faith, you give us thousands of fulfilled prophecies, thousands of details that are so far beyond 
the realm of coincidence. That walking by faith is not just blind stupidity, but it's actually informed. But I'm also thankful that no matter how much we know, there's still mystery. Lord, I, I, I hope and pray that we would be a people who never try to relieve the tension and the mystery that exists in the gospel, but that we would cling tightly to the details, that we would treasure those details that have been shared, and that we would move in the manner in which they say, walking by faith, trusting you, leaning on you every moment of every day, knowing that outside of you we can do nothing good on our own. Lord, we love you. I pray for repentance in this body, that we, like Peter, would, would weep at our sin, and that it would be genuine repentance that leads to a changed life and that leads to godliness. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.